Hi, everybody. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for coming out in the rain. Welcome to Science Sundays. Science Sundays was initiated in 2011 to take leading-edge work beyond the lab and into the lives of the public. These lectures are sponsored by eight centers in the College of Arts and Sciences. This is one of the many important ways that Ohio State, as a top 10 public research university and leading land-grant institution, carries out its commitment to serve, educate, and engage our communities. Today's talk is the last in the Science Sunday series. I'll remind you that immediately following the top talk, a reception happens up on the second floor. We hope you'll keep us on your calendar for next year. Our new season starts in September, and we hope to see you all back here again. I'm Maria Palazzi. I'm a professor in the Department of Design and the director of the Advanced Computing Center for the Arts and Design, which we call ACAD. ACAD is uniquely centered in the arts and design while deeply engaged in the sciences and technology. Through our course offerings and our creative research work, we are training designers, scientists, artists, engineers, and performers in the practices and applications of animation, information visualization, real-time virtual environments, motion capture, interactive design, and mediated performance design. Alberto Cairo, our speaker today, is a prime example of the necessity of both science and design to bring data stories to the public. I have admired and followed Alberto's work for a number of years, and he is considered a leading voice for data visualization that is both well-designed and truthful. Alberto is the Knight Chair in Visual Journalism at the School of Communication at the University of Miami. There he teaches courses on infographics and data visualization. He is also director of the visualization program at UM's Center for Computational Science. He is the principal of his own data visualization studio called Cairo, and he is currently a visualization consultant for several companies, including Google, Microsoft, McMaster Carr, and Nielsen. He is the author of the books Infographia 2.0, the Functional Art, an Introduction to Information Graphics and Visualization, published in 2012, and The Truthful Art, Data, Charts, and Maps for Communication, published in 2016. In 2012 and in 2013, Alberto organized the first Journalism Massive Open Online Course, or MOOC, in collaboration with the Knight Center at the University of Texas. And I know some of us in the audience were lucky enough to participate in that MOOC. In the past decade, Alberto has taught in more than 20 countries. He has been on his visual trumpery tour since the fall of 2017, and I'm so happy to welcome him to our campus as he teaches us about how to fight against fake data and fake visualizations from the left and from the right. Please join me in welcoming Alberto Cairo to the stage. Well, thank you so much for the nice introduction. Thank you all for being here today. It's an honor for me to be the last speaker of this year uh, in this series about science. And I would like to also thank you in, uh, in the name of my family because I came to Columbus with my wife and with my children. They are right now enjoying the weather at the zoo. They just, 
tested me, tested me that photograph. Uh, apparently, they had to buy sweaters and they bought uh, gloves, and we, we don't get to use those in Miami that much, as you may imagine. I find, I find this weather in April rather unreasonable, but they, they love it. They really love it. Anyway, I was born in northern Spain, by the way, where the weather is similar to Columbus right now, but they were born in Brazil, and so they are used to warm weather in general. Uh, and now they live in Miami, obviously. Anyway, so a little bit of housekeeping before I get started. Um, at the entrance, uh, you may have seen this little flyer over here. That flyer is important. You don't need to get it now, but on your way out, if you didn't get it on your way in, try to get it on your way out. Because this flyer has a, a link over here from which you can download both the slides that I will be using today and also some extra additional readings about charts and data visualizations and how they mislead us, how they lie to us. And I would like you to download them if you wish uh, in case that in the future you want to use them, I don't know, in classes, in, cl in case that you teach classes or you know, to teach family and friends how to become better readers of charts in the future or just for your own purposes. They are not copyrighted, so you should, be f should feel free to use them in the future. I believe that it's incredibly important to understand how charts, and when I say charts, I refer to graphs, maps, diagrams, any sort of visual depiction of information may mislead us, right? We tend to take them at face value and believe that they tell the truth, whatever that means, but more often than not, they can be highly misleading. To illustrate this, I would like to begin with an example of a very misleading chart. So this example begins with a little bit of a story. <clears throat> Back on April the 27th, 2017, three reporters from Reuters met with President Trump in the global office. They came to the global office to interview President Trump after three months in his presidency, the first 100 days, right? And according to the story that they wrote about this meeting, this interview, and I quote from the story, midway through a discussion with President Trump about Chinese President Xi Jinping, President Trump paused to hand out copies of the latest figures from the 2016 election map. Apparently, uh, during the conversation, President Trump gave these three reporters copies of that map, which is their 2016 presidential election result map, all right, county by county, you see red for areas that were won by President Trump and blue for areas that were in which candidate Clinton won a majority of the vote. Um, there's also a photograph, uh, well, apparently President Trump said by, while handing out the, co the copies of the map, here, you can take that, that's the final map of the numbers. It's pretty good, right? I mean, red is obviously us, pointing out the red areas on the map. There's a photograph of President Trump in his, in his office uh, while handing out copies of the, copies of the map. <clears throat> Trump, uh, President Trump is a fan of graphics and charts and maps, which makes me extremely happy, obviously, because I teach how to do charts. Um, the, uh, the map also, right now, hangs on the walls of the White House. This is a photograph that was taken by another reporter, a different reporter in the White House, of a big framed copy of the same map um, about to be hanged on the walls. <clears throat> President Trump has also tweeted about this map. So recently there was an interchange between President Trump and some followers on Twitter. President Trump was trying to encourage Texans to participate in a primary election. And he tweeted, I'm going to try to read his tweet over here. I want to encourage all my many Texas friends to vote in the primary for governor, blah, blah, blah. And someone who opposes President Trump replied to him, you have no friends. 
And then someone who supports President Trump replied to this other person, really? Do you believe that we don't have any friends? Take a look at that map, right? And President Trump retweeted that person saying, such a beautiful map, thank you. Well, the map is beautiful indeed. Or I love charts and I love maps and I do believe that the map is quite beautiful, but it is also extremely misleading, very, very misleading. The map has also appeared on book covers, right? There is a recent book that was published a year and something ago a title, Citizens for Trump, by author Jack Posobiec. I also found out about this book thanks to Twitter, which is the, uh, a, the social network that I use more often. And when I saw this book being tweeted by Jack Posobiec himself, um, having you know, taught how to do infographics and maps and charts for so many years, and having done them also, I like to offer my free advice to whoever wants to take it. And when I saw that book cover being tweeted, I replied to Posobiec saying, you know, I think that you should either change the title of the book or change the map. Because the title, what the title says, is not what the map is showing. And what the map is showing is not what the title says. Because the title is Citizens for Trump, and the map is not showing citizens. I am very aware that changing a map in a book cover can be a little bit complicated. It may be a little bit easier to change the title. So I propose a different title for the book that is more appropriate to what the map is showing. Now, let me explain you why I believe that this map is so misleading. Right? It's so misleading because we love to lie to ourselves. That map, that, and that happens, by the way, to anybody on the left and on the right. right? I'm picking up an example here for, from the conservative side, but this happens to everybody. That map gives you the idea of a victory by a landslide because the surface that is covered in red on that map is 80% of the surface of the map, more or less. Right? Uh, I rounded the numbers there, and 20% of the area of that map is covered in blue. So it gives you indirectly the impression of a victory by a landslide. But if you want to title your book Citizens for Clinton or Citizens for Trump, it doesn't really matter which candidate you prefer, that map is not a good representation of the data. It's not a good representation of the number of citizens who voted for each one of the candidates, right? A humble and simple bar graph could be a little bit better, a bar graph showing you the amount of people or the percentage of people who voted for each one of the candidates. 46% voted for President Trump, 48% voted for candidate Clinton, and around 6 7% voted for other candidates. I would go even further. If you want to title your book Citizens for Clinton or Citizens for Trump, it doesn't really matter. You also need to take into account the number of people who didn't vote, who could have voted by, but didn't vote. I, too, I did that in another graph. That number is around 40%. When you take that number into account, you discover that Citizens for Clinton and Citizens for Trump is around one quarter of the possible voters in this country. Therefore, perhaps the title is even, less, even, less, even more misleading. Now, <clears throat> this country is becoming so ideologically divided, something that really, really worries me, that is also becoming, divi becoming divided in terms of visualization preferences. That's a data visualization, it's a chart, right? V data visualization is just a fancy word to refer to charts, okay, or maps. Anyway, so it's also becoming, this country becoming divided in terms of preferences. I follow both conservatives and liberals and progressives and in social media and systematically have seen that whenever conservatives tweet about the or, or post something on Facebook about the results of the election, they love to use that map because it makes them, them feel good, right? We won, right? We cover the country in red. Liberals, on the other hand, whenever they see that map posted in social media, they often reply with this other map. 
saying, you idiot, why don't you use that map over there? You should be using this other map instead. Now, what is this other map? This other map here represents how many votes the winning candidate in each county received, okay? The bigger the bubble, right, the size of the bubble is proportional to the number of votes received by the winning candidate on each county. Now, I would contend to my liberal friends that this map is also highly misleading for several reasons. One of them is that it is obscuring a very important fact. There's plenty of conservative voters in democratic areas and plenty of democratic voters in Republican areas. And that map is not showing that reality. So if you want to use a bubble map to represent the popular vote, the number of people who voted for each candidate, it would be better perhaps to use two maps instead of one. One for number of votes received by the Republican candidate and another one by representing the number of votes received by the uh, Democratic candidate. But at this point of the discussion, I usually point out that if for some reason I ever won <clears throat> a presidential election in the United States, <clears throat> which is impossible by the way because I was born in Spain, therefore I cannot run for president. I can run for Congress though. But I cannot run for president. But just for the sake of argument, let's suppose that I can run for president. I run for president, I win the presidential election, I become you know, the 48th president of the United States, President Cairo. Um, if I needed or wanted to celebrate my victory by hanging a map or a chart on the walls of my White House, I would never post any of those charts or any of those graphs or maps because none of those maps really capture the metric or the number or the variable that, is, that really matters to win a presidential election in the United States, which is the number of electoral votes. It's not the popular vote. It's not the amount of territory that you win, that's completely besides the point. What really matters is how many electoral votes you get. Therefore, I would hang something like that, right? Not just one map, but two maps and one graph over there, right? Some sort of graphic that shows you the split in number of electoral votes between one candidate and the other candidate. By the way, this is a little bit of a side story. I don't know if you have heard about this, but it's a very interesting story. Um, seven electors during the electoral vote process voted for other candidates, right? They voted for Bernie Sanders. There was an elector from somewhere who voted for the bald eagle. Uh, it's American elections are very weird creatures. And then a couple of maps over here that show the national level vote, the state level vote, which is what really matters. And another map over here that distorts the areas of each one of the states according to the number of electoral votes that they contribute to the results of the presidential election. This is called a cartogram. This captures the results of the presidential elections a little bit better. <clears throat> and I believe that is what I would hang on the walls of my White House or hand over to reporters who came interview me. Now, politicians have started taking charts seriously, and this is a little bit of an announcement, probably none of you have heard about this, but Congress is going to approve International Chart Day, which is going to be next week. Next week I am going to be in Capitol Hill, delivering this same lecture, a very similar one, because Congress is going to declare Charts Day, which makes me really, really happy, because I have seen plenty, plenty of charts that can be highly misleading, and I want to raise awareness about how charts mislead. Before I move on, by the way, let me make an aside, because talking about the results of the presidential election, I have another example. I don't know if you have heard that for a while, this guy entertained the possibility of running for the American Senate. Kid Rock is a singer, uh, I believe from Michigan, and he planned for a while to run for the Senate in Michigan. There's actually a website called Kid Rock 
for Senate.com or something like that. Now he says that he, he was all a, it was all a joke, that he was just joking, right, and bringing attention to himself, but the website is there, so probably he was serious about it. Anyway, that's besides the point. I got curious about this guy when I heard that he was run to, going to run for the Senate, and I started following, following him on social media, and I saw that he was uh, posting on social media images of the merchandising that he sells in his online store. And one of the things that he sells is a T-shirt with a map of the presidential election results map. And I love maps, and I love wearing T-shirts to classes, so I thought about buying this T-shirt. Let me show you this T-shirt, which you can get for $25. So as you can see, is the state-level map, right, with a legend. I'm going to disclose the legend in just one second. All right, you can buy it for $25. <clears throat> so according to Mr. Rock, the results of the 2016 presidential elections here in the United States coincide with the boundaries of two different countries. The red country is called the United States of America. And the blue country, I, do, I I'm actually needed to censor this slide because I, I heard that there were going to be children in the room. But the, um, um, the, uh, the blue county represented in the election result map is Dampfkistan, right? as you can see there. I censored that slide, but the complete word is in there. All right, so this is a great joke. I thought that it was a fantastic joke, and actually I'm planning to buy the t-shirt, but having worked in this business for more than 20 years and taught how to do graphics, I like to offer my free advice to whoever wants to take it. So when I saw that, I suggested that if you really want to represent the boundaries between the United States of America in red and Dampfkistan in blue on the map, the state-level map is not the best representation of those boundaries, and let me explain you why. I have lived in two places here in the United States. The first time I moved from my country of origin, Spain, to North Carolina, right? And when I moved to, before I knew, moved to North Carolina, I knew very little about this state. The only thing that I knew about North Carolina, politically speaking, was that in presidential election results map published in Spanish media, the results of American presidential elections were usually reported with this kind of map. And North Carolina is usually red in most of those maps. So I was assuming that I was going to move to a slightly conservative state. Fine, I'm slightly conservative myself, at least in European terms, which is a little bit different than America. So I said, you know, well, I'm going to move to a slightly conservative state, fine, right? And then I get to North Carolina and when leave to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is like living in Berkeley University in the 60s. It's so, so annoyingly progressive. Anyway, so, and now I live, I live in Miami, Florida, right? And both Chapel Hill and Miami, Florida are not the United States of America. They are both Dampfkistan, <laughs> when you take a look at the maps at the county level. So I like to respect, respect people's heritage, and I would suggest to Mr. Rock to represent Represent the data in this case, at least at the county level, not at the state level. That's a much better representation of the boundaries. So the question that I would, that I have been asking myself, thanks to examples like this and many others that I'm going to share with you in just a minute, is: Are we graphicate enough? What I, what do I mean by graphicate? Right. There are several authors who write about graphics on a regular basis who have pointed out that today, in order to consider ourselves educated, literacy is not enough. Right? For example, cartographer Mark Momonier has a wonderful book called Mapping It Out, and in that book he says that today, in order to be educated, you need literacy, the ability to read and write, 
you need articulacy, which is the ability to express yourself and socialize with people, but you also need numeracy, which is the ability to think critically about numbers. That involves a little bit of a statistical thinking, a little bit of a skeptical thinking, a little bit of critical thinking in general. And as an extension of numeracy, you also need graphicacy, which is the ability to think critically about visuals. So for a while, I entertained the possibility of doing a lecture titled Graphicacy, and that was the original title of this talk. But I realized that if I title a talk Graphicacy, I would attract probably half the audience that I have here today, right? Fortunately, right after the 2016 presidential election, a friend of mine who I follow in social media tweeted the, word, the meaning of the very old English word trumpery, which comes from the old French. A trumpery is something that deceives, and more in particular is something that deceives the eye. So I think, well, this is great. It's a great title for a talk because it will help me make several points during the talk. The first, well, the first thing is that it will help me attract bigger audiences, right? But also it will help me trick people, right? It, and also it will help me make the first point or give the first piece of advice uh, for people who want to become better readers of charts, which is to pay attention and read beyond the title. Because if you don't do that, you will always be misled by the things that you see in social media or in news media. I have devoted my life to do graphics for news media. I started my career in Spain in the 1990s, working for several Spanish newspapers. Then I worked for, as a consultant for several media organizations here in the US, also in Brazil. And I believe that these are just examples of charts that I have produced throughout the years. <clears throat> I have come to believe that news media is one of the reasons why uh, charts are everywhere, right? If you follow um, a news media closely, you will have, may have noticed that in the past few years, there has been an explosion in the use of charts everywhere. Data maps, data graphs, diagrams, animations, and things like that. These are just screenshots of several media publications that I happen to follow because I believe that they do very good job, very good work in terms of graphics. There are publications here that are both liberal and conservative. You have, for example, the Weekly Standard over here, which is an excellent publication. All of them use data visualization, right? Data visualization or charts are based on the idea of visual encoding. What is visual encoding? It's a very fancy term for a very simple principle. Whenever you see a chart, a data map or a graph, etc., what you need to believe, what you need to think about, or what you need to visualize is that what you are seeing is numbers represented visually, right? Through the encoding of those numbers, right? What, what we do when we create a graphic is to, or chart, is to vary features of objects according to underlying numbers. So for example, in a bar graph, the method of encoding is length or height, because the length or the height of those objects vary in proportion to the numbers that are being represented, right? In the case, for example, of a dot plot, which is that chart that you have over there, the method of encoding is position. The position of those dots over a common scale is proportional to the numbers. In the case of bubble charts or bubble maps, like the ones that I showed you before, the method of encoding is area. The area of those circles is proportional to the numbers that are being represented, and so on and so forth. We can also use color, hue, and color shade, different intensities of color to represent, for example, the results of the presidential election or unemployment rate or whatever you want to, whatever you want to represent. Now, why do we visualize? Because visualization charts can be extremely powerful. If I show you that, 
you see nothing, right? Let me tell you what this, what this table is. This is a table of average global temperatures from the year 1000 up to the year 2000. In comparison to an average, which is the zero baseline, and that's the reason why you see positive numbers and negative numbers. So that means above that average or below that average. If I show you that, I guarantee that none of you understands anything, right? It's impossible to extract meaning from large amounts of numbers unless that we visualize them, unless that we transform transform those numbers, for example, into a line chart that shows us whether temperatures increased or decreased in the past 1,000 years. And actually, they have increased, as we all know. This is one of the most famous charts ever created. It's commonly called the hockey stick chart, because global temperatures, when you plot them on a chart, create the shape of a hockey stick. From the year 1000 up to the year 1900, more or less, global temperatures varied, but they varied within a certain range. And once we get to the beginning of the 20th century, global temperatures start spiking up very, very rapidly, creating the bottom of the stick, the shape of the stick at the end, right? So those are the numbers that we had before on the table visualized. And now they, when, when we represent them visually, when we visually encode them, now we start seeing that trend or that pattern in the data. More or less flat, sudden spike. That thing was hidden before. When we represent numbers just numerically, just ta in tabular format, these kinds of features in the data may go unnoticed. We may not perceive them. In case that you want, by the way, if this talk convinces you that charts is something that you're interested in, um, one resource that I have in my own website, my website is thefunctionalart.com, which is the title of my first book published in the United States. On the upper right corner, I have a tutorials and resources section in which I post tons of video tutorials about how to use charting tools and graphing tools and map tools, etc. most of them free. So in case that you're interested in learning a little bit more, you can go to my website later on. But today, I, I'm not interested, as I said before, in talking about tools of, or, of, or software. I'm more interested, in again, in this question, can most of us or most people understand the grammar and vocabulary of charts? And if we do, can we extract the right meaning from the charts that we see every day in the media. As I pointed out before with the example of the maps of the, from the presidential elections, we tend to be misled by the charts that we see every day in the media. And there are other, there are other uh, sources of evidence for that. So this is a, a chart that appeared in a survey that was conducted by the Pew Research Center in 2014. So the Pew Research Center, every couple of years, I believe, conduct a survey asking Americans, a sample of 1,000 Americans, about their knowledge about science, right? In that survey in 2014, they included a question about this chart. What do you see in this chart? What is the message that this chart is trying to convey? Now, in case that you have never seen this kind of chart, don't feel bad about it, that's perfectly normal. This, this is called a scatter plot. A scatter plot is a chart that uses position to encode data. Each one of these circles that you see here represents one country. Doesn't matter which countries we have here, right? That's besides the point. Each circle is a country. The position of each dot on the horizontal axis is proportional in this case. We should always read the legends, all right? The position on the horizontal axis is proportional to the average sugar consumption per person. So the further to the right, 
a point is the more sugar people consume on average on each one of these countries. And then the position on the vertical axis is proportional to the average number of decay teeth on each one of these countries per person. So as you may notice, once you understand there, the farther to the right, the more sugar, and the farther up you go, the more, um, the more average, the average number of decay teeth in a country, you will see that there is a positive relation between those two variables, right? The further to the right a dot is, the further up it tends to be as well. That's called a positive correlation, right? That's the right message. Now, in this survey, 63% of Americans could read this graphic correctly. 37% couldn't get the right message from the chart. Now, this is both good news and bad news. Let me begin with the good news. The good news is that I believe that if the same survey had been conducted when I began my career 20 years ago, probably that percentage would have been much smaller. The reason why so many people can read this graphic correctly is that this is a kind of chart that is being published nowadays by news media, right? The New York Times, the Washington Post publishes, for example, scatter plots on a regular basis, right? The bad news, though, is that 37% of people, one-third of people in the survey could not read it correctly, so we need to work a little bit more on that. This is worrying because regardless of whether we read charts correctly and regardless whether we interpret those charts correctly or pay attention to those charts, the mere presence of charts in the media that we consume is persuasive, all right? There have been several, several research projects that, you have, that have shown that once you start including numbers and charts and data maps, et cetera, in, in messages, in, in surveys or in news stories or, what, or tweets or whatever, that message that you're trying to convey begins becoming a little bit more persuasive than it would have been without the visual, right? Even if people don't read those charts very carefully, when they see a chart, we tend to equate for some reason numbers and charts with science, and we, be we believe that they embody the truth, right? Now, this talk is a call for you to stop doing that. Charts can be very ambiguous, and charts can be very misleading, and we need to pay attention to them. That's the first thing that we need to do. What to do to defend ourselves against the fact that we often misinterpret charts. The first thing is that to remember that a chart is not an illustration, a data map or a graph or whatever. Those are not drawings. They are visual arguments. The same way that you cannot interpret a piece of text correctly unless that you read it, you will never be able to interpret a chart correctly if you don't read it. Charts are not meant to be seen, they are meant to be read. In the case of graphs, for example, we need to read the axis, we need to read the legend, we need to read the title. In the case of data maps, we need to read the scale, what it is that is being measured and how, right? Now, after we have paid attention to the chart, there are five different things that we could pay attention at in order to assess whether we are in front of a reliable chart or whether they are, we are in front of a trumpery. The first point, that we need to pay attention at is whether the is to whether the chart is showing appropriate data. So which source is the designer using for this particular chart, right? Is the source reliable? And are they plotting the right numbers on the chart? This is actually Quite simple to do, it's not that hard to do. Anybody can do this, even if you are not trained in statistics or numerical thinking. Let me give you just a couple of examples. <clears throat> a while ago, I saw the following map on social media, and I absolutely loved it, and I immediately retweeted it and posted it on Facebook, and I shouldn't have done that. 
It's a map that shows the concentration of heavy metal bands in Europe, right? Uh, using, as method of encoding, color shade, okay? The darker the color, the bigger the number of heavy metal bands on each one of these countries. Now, I love this map because it confirmed something that I have already believed, which is that a darker a place gets, the larger the number of heavy metal bands you have, right? <laughs> Or the colder a place gets, the more heavy metal you have, at least in Western Europe, right? If you go, for example, to Finland, Sweden, and Norway, those are commonly considered the heavy metal capitals of the world. So this confirms something that I already believed, and I retweeted it. That's dangerous. When a chart confirms what you already believe, that is when you need, when you need to be more skeptical about the chart. And stop for a second, and not, not post it in social media or share it with friends. What is the source? That's the first question. Uh, for the data that is being represented over here, the source is called Encyclopedia Metallum. So let's go to the source, and let's see what it is that these people are counting as heavy metal. What is it that they are counting as heavy metal, right? Anyway, so before we do that, I did this, by the way, uh, because I undid my retweet, and then I double-checked, I verified the source, and then I retweeted it when I realized that the data is right, okay? But let me show you the process. The first thing that I did was to, first of all, imagine what is the most representative heavy metal band, right? And why did I do this? Because I thought this way. If I go to the source and I see that all the bands that are listed in the Encyclopedia Metallum are more similar than not to this quintessential heavy metal band that I have in my mind, then they are counting heavy metal. But if they are also counting bands that are more dissimilar than similar to this ideal heavy metal band, then perhaps they are not counting just heavy metal. They are counting other musical genre, not just heavy metal. Anyway, so I'm going to ask you to think about the most quintessential heavy metal band. Just keep that. I try to imagine one band that you believe that represents everything that is metal about metal. The aesthetics, the music, the, uh, the, the, the attitude, and so on and so forth. I bet that many of you are thinking about Metallica, for example, or if you are older from my generation, Slayer here from the United States, right? Anyway, I'm from Europe, and for me, the most metal of the metal bands, the one that represents everything that is metal about metal is Judas Priest. Now, Judas Priest has everything that is metal about metal. Let's begin counting the features. Let's begin with, with the, the metal features that they have. So first of all, let's begin with the external features, which you can see, which you can see in the photograph. The long hair, right? The, uh, the leather clothing, the spikes, right? The attitude, the bikes. Every time that these people have a, a live show, they enter the stage with a, in, on top of a, of a Harley Davidson bike. So it's very metal. Now, these are the external features. Now, what about the performance features? Those are very, very heavy metal. So I'm going to just show you a little bit of the music that these people play. And those are the, well, this is a, an example of the lyrics. These come from a song called Painkiller, which is a very aggressive song, very metal. Anyway, this is how it sounds. And actually, down there, I listed some of the performing features. So this is how Painkiller sounds. Drums, that's very important for heavy metal, right? Now the guitar riffs and the head banging synchronized, that's even better. And the singing. 
So it's very metal. It's so metal that someone on YouTube actually commented on this video. That's so metal that all the refrigerator magnets came into the living room to see what was going on. <laughs> it's very metal, right? Anyway, so. As you may notice, I happen to be a fan of hard rock and heavy metal. I know quite a lot about, this is not my favorite band, but it's a, it's a, it's a classic, right? Anyway, so that's a, another reason why I retweeted that map immediately, right? But being familiar with the literature and the history of heavy metal, I have also seen other bands being labeled as heavy metal. If you go to the Wikipedia page about heavy metal, you will see other bands that I didn't really consider heavy metal. Those are not heavy metal. I don't know, remember if you remember Poison from the 80s, or even Bon Jovi. I have seen Bon Jovi labeled as heavy metal. Bon Jovi's rock, melodic rock, whatever, but it's not heavy metal, right? Anyway, I went to the source. None of those bands are there. Only very metal bands are in the source. Now that, we that I have assessed the source, I have ver basically verified that the map is counting only heavy metal. Now I can safely share you with friends, share you on social media, and so on and so forth. Let me show you a more serious example now. A while ago, Vox.com, which is one of those media organizations that I happen to follow because they do good, good work, good visualization work, uh, published the following story. American health, America's healthcare prices are out of control. These 11 charts prove it. Now, let me tell you, this is the kind of a story that I would always, always mindlessly retweet. Why? Because I'm from Europe, right? And we have socialized medicine, which is very scary in Europe. So this is the kind of a story that I would retweet. I do believe that American healthcare prices are out of control and are crazy. So I would see that, I see that chart, the chart confirms what I already believe, I retweet it. No, wrong, stop. Take a look at this chart and take a look at the story. Now, this story start, made a, a, a little bit of an alarm. It started ringing inside my head. I like to call that my BS detector. I would not spell that out. Um, why did it do that? Well, by, because my entire family works in healthcare in, or has worked in healthcare in Spain. And as you can see here, we have a comparison of the price of a cataract surgery in different countries, where the cataract surgery, on average, in the United States costs $3,500. In Spain, it costs $1,700, basically half on average, of what it costs in Spain. The first question was, came to my mind, because as I know, the salaries that my family, that members of my family used to make in Spain as doctors and nurses. And I can tell you that if my dad or my mom have moved to the United States to work in exactly the same jobs, they would have made double the salary, or a little bit more perhaps, right? So this relationship that you see over here, double in the United States, half in Spain, is actually reproduced by the salaries that doctors and nurses have. It is also replicated if you take a look at the disposable income of these countries. The disposable income is the amount of money that you can keep in your pocket after you pay for expenses such as, such as taxes. The average av uh, household disposable income in the United States of a family is $41,000, is $22,000 in Spain. So the first thing that I asked myself when I saw this story was, are these prices controlled by purchasing power parity? And this is a very important thing to consider when you see international comparisons, because I can tell you, having lived in Spain, Brazil, in the United States, I can tell you that $1,000 is not the same amount of money on each of these countries. $1,000 in the United States, it's 
a lot of money, but it's not as much money as it is in Spain, and certainly it is not as much money as it is in Brazil. In Brazil, a $1,000 salary is a quite good salary, quite good salary, it can take you a long way. But this is not the reason why this story, I believe, is wrong. This is what made me go to the source of the story. I read the story, unfortunately, Vox.com follows good journalistic practices, and they disclose the sources of the data. This is just an aside, by the way, for the younger members in the audience. If a news story doesn't disclose the origin of the data, distrust that news story by default, period. Good journalistic practice is when a news organization links directly to the primary source of the data, which is something that Vox.com did. The source of the data is an organization called the International Federation of Health Plans, okay? And this is the page that you can see if you take a look at the source of the data, which everybody can understand. This is a page that describes the methodology of how the data was put together. Here's what you, what you can read. Here's what you can read on that page. <clears throat> this is the 2015 survey overview. How average prices for a cataract surgery and other procedures were calculated, right? Well, first of all, they tell you in this page, and this is the first red flag, that the survey was conducted based not on a random sample, but on a self-selected sample. What is a self-selected sample? A sample in which people participate voluntarily. So all the average prices that were depicted in the charts that Vox.com published were based on averaging the prices of healthcare systems or healthcare plans that participate in this organization, that are part of this organization. This organization has members in all these countries, but we don't know if the members of this organization in these countries are representative of all the healthcare providers on each one of these countries. We don't know. Anyway, let's keep reading this page. They, then they tell you, well, the average prices of all these procedures, cataract surgery and other kinds of surgeries, etc., for the, for the United States market, they are calculated by averaging hundreds of millions of reports. This is what it means. This organization has several tons of members in the United States. Imagine that we plot them on a horizontal axis, all right? On the horizontal axis, we put, for example, price charge for a cataract surgery. And then we plot, as a little dot, each one of the members in the United States of the members of this International Federation of Health Plans. Some of them will be cheaper, some of them will charge more, right? So some, they will be like some sort of distribution like these. Some of these healthcare providers in the United States will be mm, cheaper, some of them will be more expensive. And what this organization did was to calculate the average of all those reports. They received hundreds of millions of reports and they calculate the average, right? So we, we can sort of assume that that average that is based on tons and tons of different records may be close than not to the actual average of a cataract price of the cataract surgery in the United States. But let's take a look at how the price, average price of a cataract surgery and other procedures were, was calculated in other countries. Prices for other countries are based on one health care provider per market. This is extremely problematic. Why? Because we don't have any way to know whether that single provider chosen to represent that market is representative of that market or not. If you remember the plot that I drew you before with all the providers over here, in the United States we have hundreds of millions of, of records and providers, we calculate the average. In Spain, they only had one provider and we don't know whether that provider is much cheaper than the real average of the country or much more expensive than the average of that country. We don't know if that provider is representative or not. 
And more worrying and adding insult to injury, the source itself, the International Federation of Healthcare Plans, at the end of this methodology, methodology page, actually tells you, please don't use the data. Because at the end, they tell you, they say, comparisons across different countries are complicated. Of course, they are complicated, very complicated, by differences in sectors, the fact that some countries have public health care, very strong public health care, and so on. And then they say, single plans prices, the price paid by one provider in one country, may not be representative by the prices that are charged by all the other providers in that market. That's the key, right? They are telling you, don't use this data. Don't use this data at face value. Verify it first before you use it. Now, why did Vox.com Vox use this data? I can tell you why. Because we are human beings. We make mistakes. And we journalists are usually rushed to publish. Sometimes we are absent-minded. Sometimes we make mistakes. The key, though, is to whether that those journalists will cor correct those mistakes later on or not, right? So it's good to be aware of all these problems as readers, because as readers, I believe, we have a responsibility to double check or verify whatever it is that we are going to share with friends, family, etc., in social media. Today, we are all publishers. You are all publishers. We are all journalists. You are all journalists. You are promoters of information. You are distributors of information. Therefore, it's important to verify what it is that we share before we share it. Obviously, the main responsibility is on the journalistic side. Okay? That's the main responsibility. But as I said before, journalists make mistakes. I have made this kind of mistake myself, so I know where this mistake comes from. Does the graphic, does the chart that is being shown to you include an adequate, a sufficient amount of data for you to figure out what's going on? This is also a very important question. <clears throat> Some charts are oversimplifications of data. Let me show you an example. This chart that you have here, there is nothing wrong with it, mathematically speaking, all right? Or geometrically speaking. There's nothing wrong with it. And the data is sound. The data comes from a law enforcement agencies, such as the FBI. This shows you the murder rate in the United States per 100,000 people. There's nothing wrong with that. We all have heard the story. The murder rate went up during the 80s. It came down during the 90s. Then it stayed more or less the same during the 2000s. And in the past two or three years, the murder rate, quite worryingly, has started uh, increasing again. That's a very, very worrying story. But how worried should you be? It depends on where you live. The problem with this chart is that it takes millions of places and it calculates, so to, so to speak, the average of all those places, right? Why is this dangerous? Because it may be an oversimplification of the data. And in, in this case, it is. Let me tell you why. Most cities, towns, neighborhoods in the United States are very safe. My neighborhood in the United States, where I live in the United States is called The Crossings in Kendall, in Miami. We have seen one murder in the past six years, just one murder, right? And most places in the United States are like my neighborhood. They're very, very safe, right? What is the problem? So if we could plot them in this chart, they will be down here. Imagine that we had millions of dots over here, each one of them representing the murder rate on one place in the United States. Most of them will be at the bottom of the chart. Now, why has the murder rate increased in the past two or three years? Because there are certain neighborhoods in very specific cities, like Chicago, Baltimore, Miami, Milwaukee, and some others that have become so, so violent and so, so dangerous in the past few years in the United States that if we try to plot them on the chart, 
We couldn't do that. We, we wouldn't be able to do that. They will be off the chart. They will go through the roof. The murder rate in those places is so high that it skews the national rate. It works like a magnet attracting that line up. So what am I trying to tell you, which is that when you see a chart that seems to oversimplify data, always demand more detail. And if you are aware that this is the case, that this is what's going on, demand from whoever is showing you the data to show you not just this chart, but also discuss what we call the outliers that may be distorting the data that is being presented to you. Because both the murder rate and a discussion of the outliers of the data are important for you to understand what the reality of the story truly is. Another thing, are you reading too much into the chart? This happens to all of us. It's the reason why so many people are misled by the election maps that I showed you before, because we want to see, we see what we want to see, right? And we use, usually use charts to basically defend our own arguments or our own ideology. Let me show you another case, which is not ideological. A while ago, I saw uh, the following stories in, in media. Chocolate and Nobel Prizes linked in a study uh, correlation between countries' chocolate consumption and Nobel Prize winners, and my favorite one is eat more chocolate, win the Nobel Prize. This is my favorite one. Now, how many times have you seen the stories like this in media, right? Now, when I saw this, I always ask myself, what is the source of the data, right? What is the source of this? Well, the source in this case is a very reliable source. It's the New England Journal of Medicine, which published a while ago, not a study, this was not a study, it was a highly conjectural article in which a, um, a cardiologist from New York gathered data of chocolate consumption, data of number of Nobel Prizes, and he plotted everything in a chart and show you that there, show that there's a correlation between, as you can see, this one of these flags is a country. The further to the right a country is, the larger the amount of chocolate that people in that country consumes. And then the position on the vertical axis is proportional to the number of Nobel Prizes per 10 million people. So there's a clear correlation. The more chocolate people consume, the more Nobel Prizes you have. But as statisticians like to say, correlation doesn't imply causation. You cannot say that chocolate leads to more Nobel Prizes. It could be the opposite. It could be that countries that win more Nobel Prizes eat more chocolate because people want to celebrate eating chocolate. That's, that's a, a case of reverse causation. We don't know. Anyway, so. Correlation doesn't equal causation. Uh, so in this case, not only journalists took the story seriously, and by the way, the original article was written tongue-in-cheek. It was sort of half of a joke on the part of the writer. Anyway, all the other, other publications, very serious publications, took this very seriously. And for example, the Journal of Nutrition, which is a very serious publication, published an article, a paper debunking the conjectural article by the New England Journal of Medicine, basically saying something that you probably have thought already, which is that Nobel Prizes are may be correlated with many other variables, such as, for example, wealth. The wealthier a country is, the more Nobel Prizes it has, for obvious reasons, right? The richer a country is, right, the more chocolate they can buy, but also the more money they can invest in improving their educational system. Therefore, you know, spawning more um, Nobel Prizes later on. So the, that article includes a couple of charts showing you the correlation between GDP per capita, for example, and number of Nobel Prizes. And the correlation between those two is actually quite strong. The wealthier a country is, or people are in countries, the more Nobel Prizes 
sacrifices you have. But they went a little bit beyond that, and they tried to replicate the tongue-in-cheek tone of the original article, and they say, well, but you can correlate Nobel Prizes with many other variables. For example, wine consumption. There's just a correlation between wine consumption and number of Nobel Prizes, right? So the drunker people get, the more Nobel Prizes you have. <laughs> and my favorite one is that the strongest correlation that they found was between Nobel Prizes and number of IKEA stores per 10 million people. That's the strongest one, right? It's a very, very strong correlation. Very strong correlation. The fourth, the fourth point is, is the data represented accurately? Remember the whole point about charts, which is the numerical encoding, the encoding of the data, right? So if you use bar graphs, for example, the bars need to be proportional to the data. Or if you use position, the position needs to be proportional to the data. If you use color, the color should be proportional to the data. Sometimes that rule is not respected, and we should pay attention to that because it's one of the most common tricks uh, used by people who want to deceive us. This is a chart shown by Venezolana de Televisión, which is a, pub a public TV station in Venezuela. Um, showing the results of the latest presidential elections in Venezuela, right? There were two main candidates in that election, Nicolas Maduro, the current president of Venezuela, and Enrique Capriles, who is the opposition, who was the opposition candidate. And as you can see, based on this chart show on, shown on TV for a few seconds, Nicolas Maduro got, I would say, 10 times the amount of votes that Enrique Capriles got, just because the red bar is 10 times the size of the blue bar, right? Unfortunately, the results of the election were slightly different. Slightly different only, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, and the last point. Is uncertainty revealed, right? Uncertainty. All data is uncertain. That's the reason why probably you have read many times in the newspaper margin of error, for example, right? The margin of error is a very important metric, right? If two numbers are very close to each other in a survey and the margin of error is very, very large, you cannot really tell whether that one number is bigger than the other just because the cloud of uncertainty around those numbers is so large. But sometimes, even when uncertainty is represented in charts, it can be highly misleading. The chart can be highly misleading. Just to finish the talk, let me show you one of my favorite examples in this talk of chart that lies to everybody who sees it, including myself, the first time that I saw it. Living in Miami, I see this kind of chart every single year during hurricane season, right? This is one of the maps that was shown on TV during Hurricane Irma, okay? Now, this chart that you have over here is called the cone of uncertainty, right? So basically what scientists are doing is showing you the most probable path of the center of the, of the storm, the hurricane, and then they surround that path of, with, a, with a cone of increasing width, okay? Of increasing weight, right? Anyway, so, um, what you should see when you see this, by the way, let me make an aside, people in Miami call this not the cone of uncertainty, some people call it the cone of death. It's because if they believe that if you are inside the boundaries of the cone, you are threatened by the hurricane, but if you are outside the boundaries of the cone, you are fine. And that's exactly how not to read the map, right? Anyway, let me explain how to read this map correctly. What scientists are trying to tell you is that they estimate that the most probable path of the center of the storm is this red line over here. But truly, the center of the storm 
could be anywhere or could go anywhere within the boundaries of that cone. So it could be these scientists run tons of different models, experiments, right? Predictive experiments, and they vary in different variables. And I say, well, the hurricane could go a little bit, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, a little bit over here, a little bit over here. They basically plot all those lines, all those models, and then instead of showing you every single possible path, what they do is to create a cone which looks very clear-cut and very clean, right? They, they believe that it looks a little bit cleaner. Now, this is problematic for several reasons. First of all, because most people who see that don't interpret it that way, don't read it that way. Actually, based on several experiments, it has been shown that some people, when they see the cone of uncertainty, what they see is the size of the storm itself. They see that. There is a very, uh, actually I can tell you a true story. A friend of mine recently moved to, Miami, moved to Miami a couple of years ago, and when Irma was approaching, the first predictive models were predicting that Irma was going to run over Miami. So he started installing shutters in the windows, getting water and food, et cetera, et cetera. And then suddenly the later uh, prediction models started moving the cone of uncertainty to the west not touching Miami. Miami was already outside the boundary of the cone. And my friend said, well, why, why should I care? I should not worry anymore, right? Well, I told him, no, you should not read the map that way because again, what the map is representing is tons of possible paths of the center of the storm. But what you should mentally visualize on top of those lines, you need to remember that that's just the path of the center of the storm. But a hurricane is a huge thing. Therefore, on top of those lines, you need to overlay the size of the storm. That's what you should visualize when you see a cone of uncertainty, right? Well, let me tell you, even people who know how to do this correctly still get it wrong. Let me explain you why. The first time that I saw the cone of uncertainty, I asked myself, is the cone containing all possible paths of the center of the storm? This was not my assumption, though. 100%, all the possible parts of the center of the storm. My assumption was a little bit different. My assumption was that scientists were trying to tell me 95% out of 100 times that we experience a hurricane like these, the center of the storm will be inside the boundaries of the cone of uncertainty. But there may be some outliers, some strange cases due to randomness in which the, 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 the hurricane could end up going over here, or it could end up going over here, but with, with a much lower probability, right? Now, this is not true. The true is that the hurricane, the cone of uncertainty, only contains two out of three possible paths of the center of the storm. Think about it. Scientists are telling you 66% of the time, the path of the center of the storm would, could be anywhere within the boundaries of the cone of uncertainty. 33% of the time could go outside the boundaries of the cone of uncertainty. Now, why is this misleading or why is it dangerous? Remember the prediction models created to predict the results of the 2016 presidential elections. Many people gave President Trump a probability of 33% winning the election, and he won. 33% is a very high probability of something happening. You see that problem visualized over here. Now, you may be wondering, why do we keep seeing this kind of map over and over and over again on TV? Never blame the scientists in cases like these. Blame journalists. We journalists love this map because it looks so clear-cut, right? Rather than show every single line, we prefer something that looks clear-cut and that nobody understands correctly. But the, Na the National Hurricane Center and NOAA, they are trying to push other kinds of hurricane maps 
that I, I hope that journalists will start picking up in the future. Anyway, just to wrap up the talk today, I would like you in the future, as I said before, go to the um, uh, URL provided in the flyer to download the slides if you want. Keep all these principles in mind. Next time that you see a chart in your favorite newspaper, if you still, if you still read print newspapers like I do, I'm super old-fashioned, or graphics that you see in social media, whatever, always try to apply these principles to assess the quality of those uh, graphics uh, critically. Let's embrace them because I believe that charts can be very powerful and very informative if they are read well, but only if we use them wisely and also ethically, which I believe that is quite important to create a good informational environment in the future to which everyone can contribute a little bit. Thank you so much.